This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Carlos Kajina is our technical producer, and Ryan White is our live stream producer. Be sure and check out the YouTube channel, Strange Planet, and the uh, Rumble channel, Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Uh, Before we get rolling, I want to uh, acknowledge our Patreon Star Chamber donors, Tim Sullivan, Deep Paul, and the Harmonic Egg. Thank you so much, all of you, so, so much for your continued loyalty and support And your monthly donation means a great deal. It makes a huge difference, and it helps me and Ryan uh, continue to do what we do here. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, just go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Pick the donor tier that's right for you. Of course, any amount is greatly appreciated. Coming up in the second half. Former cattle rancher turned writer researcher Julius Ruchel will be here. He's the author of Autopsy of a Pandemic, The Lies, the Gamble, and the COVID Zero Con. And Julius will discuss the mysterious disappearance and then the reappearance of the flu. Remember that? Natural versus vaccine induced immunity, the inability of the vaccines to control the virus and other extraordinary lessons about the end of the pandemic. Also an hour two. David Redman is the former head of Alberta, Canada's emergency management agency. We'll, and uh, he'll be here to explain how governments across Canada did the exact opposite of what they should have done in response to the pandemic. The exact opposite. He says it's nothing less than criminal negligence. This hour, U.S. constitutional lawyer Jonathan Emord returns to the program to discuss the massive 
trucker protests sweeping across Canada and, in fact, now around the world. We're going to explore the role of civil disobedience in a, in a healthy Western liberal democracy. How do we know it's time to engage in civil disobedience? What are the limits of civil disobedience? What's the difference between civil disobedience and insurrection? Jonathan Emord has been practicing constitutional and administrative law before the federal courts and agencies since 1985. Having begun his career as an attorney in the Federal Communications Commission during the administration of President Ronald Reagan, Jonathan has maintained an abiding conviction to achieve full First Amendment protection for the freedom of speech and press. In 1991, he authored the critically acclaimed Freedom, Technology, and the First Amendment, in which he chronicled the intellectual foundations of the First Amendment and advocated replacing government control over the airwaves with a title registry private property rights approach. He's the author of several books, including Global Censorship of Health Information, The Rise of Tyranny, Restore the Republic, and his latest, The Authoritarians. Jonathan Emord, welcome back to the program. How are you? Just fine. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Let me get your overall impressions of the uh, the trucker protests that started in Canada, I guess they began. Uh, well, they rolled into Ottawa around uh, the uh, the end of January, and uh, it's just sort of taken off worldwide. What are your overall impressions? What what stands out for you? Well, I'm grateful. Uh, I think that this is just what happens when you deprive people of their individual liberty. Uh, they'll either go the way of people who are succumbing to totalitarianism around the world, which is just to cave in to those who wish to take their liberties away, or in the case of these strong Canadians, they refuse to have their rights taken away without standing up and at least protesting. And I think that their protests have been very effective, and I think it is in the long line of civil rights protests uh, dating back to the 60s. It's... uh, it's, it's their right uh, that they're standing up for, their freedoms, and um, no one should be uh, disparaging them for that because uh, it shouldn't be a one-sided environment in Canada where authority figures force the people to bend down and, and worship at the throne of this vaccine mandate or the vaccine passports or limiting all of their rights to worship and to go to places to congregate or to eat, uh, forcing them to uh, form an allegiance, which is, you know, they've transformed vaccination into a political event in which people have to endorse adherence to a state dogma that's driven more out of politics than it is out of science. It's been a mistake from the start. Coercion doesn't work. You've got to give people full information and allow them to decide what's in their own best interest and what's in the best interest of their families. And ironically, despite all of their efforts, the lockdowns have been a miserable failure, have not moved the mark at all against the virus. But what has changed the environment is the Omicron virus. 
the Omicron virus has succeeded because of its uh, ability to block the Delta virus, the original virus, in causing a precipitous drop in the number of cases worldwide. And it's uh, really the way out. It's sort of nature's vaccine, as Dr. Marty McCary puts it. What is the role of civil disobedience? Why is it important to have uh, that that tool, I suppose, for citizens in a in a Western liberal democracy? So with freedom comes the ever-present risk that those in government will abuse their power and take freedom away. So you can't just assume that freedom is whatever Parliament says it is. Freedom, you drive your liberties not from Parliament but from God. And those liberties are unalienable. And when the state trenches upon your rights, you have but few recourses. You can revolt in armed rebellion, and one would hope that that would be a very last resort, uh, or you can do what is very a tried and true method of protesting, and usually protest is considered your right as well. It's a freedom of speech and uh, a freedom of assembly, which are deemed to be fundamental rights. And when you choose to do that, you're doing nothing more than exerting your sovereignty as citizens, proving that you are in political dissent from a movement by those in power who are ultimately answerable to you unless they wish to take over and assume totalitarian powers, which they're not lawfully able to do. So when Trudeau pounds his chest and stares down the Canadian public and stares down the truckers and says, back down, and I insist upon it, uh, he's, he's being foolish, politically foolish, because I think the long-term consequences of his uh, unwillingness to compromise will be borne out ultimately in, in elections. But I believe that uh, more fundamentally, he's showing himself to be an enemy of the people's liberties. And that's not a good place to be for a leader in a democracy. He's accountable to the people. He should be meeting with the truckers. He should be meeting with Canadian citizens who dissent. He shouldn't ignore them. He shouldn't hide from them. He shouldn't label them terrorists or fascists. He shouldn't uh, try to use police to uh, harm them or obstruct their protests. Uh, that's, that's what he should be doing. Now, clearly breaking the law is ordinarily something that one ought not to do and, and in the course even of a protest. However, when the law itself is unjust, when the law itself violates your liberties, then uh, if you are following your rights, you would not follow. You would not uh, abide by a law that violates your rights. If if the, if the state says you may not speak in dissent, the state has violated your freedom of speech. You can vindicate that right potentially through legal action in a court. But if there isn't time sufficient and the threat is imminent, you may have to do what Martin Luther King did, which is to sit 
engage in sit-down strikes or to march in areas where they wouldn't allow uh, people of color to march or to drink from the whites-only uh, soda fountain or bubbler. And that's, uh, that is a sign, yes, it is a violation of, of a, a law, but a law that is unjust, that violates the Constitution, that violates your rights. So Jonathan think, W. Emord is with us, the author of The Authoritarians, emord.com, E-M-O-R-D, emord.com. You mentioned, you know, at the far end is armed insurrection, and of course, you know, we, we hope that never happens. Uh, but, you know, where is the line? Is there a line for peaceful civil disobedience? So, for example, um, when the truckers and their supporters were blocking the Ambassador Bridge between Detroit and Windsor, uh, over which about 25% of uh, the uh, the goods that are traded between our two countries travels, and uh, we're told that this was putting the auto sector in, in grave uh, in jeopardy, that, that the auto plants would have to shut down, and this was going to hurt people. Uh, who had jobs in the auto sector and so forth, and and some, and and I would I would argue, uh, in order to be consistent, because I I opposed, for example, protesters who were against the construction of pipelines in Canada. They were throwing uh, burning tires onto railroad tracks. They were trying to block uh, and impede the construction of certain infrastructure, and I opposed that. Uh, so to be consistent, I thought, well, you know, perhaps they should allow people to travel on the Ambassador Bridge, allow that trade to go through. What are your thoughts on that? And what are the limits to civil disobedience? Well, I do believe that uh, it's preferable for the protesters to engage in lawful protest, and certainly by blocking the bridge uh, completely, um, they they are they are denying the use of a thoroughfare that's meant to be open to the public, and so they're violating law. However, uh, their point in breaking the law and now laws are oftentimes broken in in when one engages in political dissent, and in this instance, people are fighting for their liberties, their individual freedom, uh, and as a consequence. It's, it's quite a different thing uh, to stand up for your freedom against an unjust law being applied against you versus uh, taking on, uh, you know, an, an industrial party because you object to pollution or some other thing that doesn't immediately affect your individual freedom. Uh, having said that, there is, of course, a, a very easy solution to this problem, which is for Justin Trudeau to get rid of the vaccine mandates and get rid of the vaccine passports and to work with the provinces to achieve that objective. It's against what he has argued for. But there is no sound justification for his position. And so while I sympathize greatly with the truckers, I agree with you that... Uh, one ought to pursue a lawful course, mindful of two things. One is that it's not necessary, you know, if it was indispensable for some reason that a law be broken 
in order to establish your position on rights. And we meant I mentioned one where you have segregation in, in the 60s and 50s and the Jim Crow era in the South, and individuals of color would want to drink from the whites-only fountain or go use a whites-only bathroom or get on the, the whites-only segment of a train or a bus to establish the illegal, the fundamental rights violation taking place. But they were also willing to be arrested and to suffer the consequences of the arrest, even in protest. So, yes, there are times when civil disobedience becomes necessary. Remember George Wallace standing uh, in front of the school in Georgia, when, or was it Alabama? When uh, the National Guard were called upon Alabama, to, right? Yeah, Alabama, to ensure that federal law would be followed. He was standing up for state law. Likewise, these truckers are really standing up for fundamental law. That is their unalienable right uh, to be free of this coercion and forced compliance. Um, but I would say it's it's in their best interest not to block the bridge entirely. And likewise, I think they've decided um, to move out of the residential areas in Ontario, um, I mean Ottawa and Ontario, around the Parliament so that they can, uh, you know, can the people uh, who are in the neighborhoods can be at peace. And that um, is smart. That's a very smart move. Because I think most Canadians, I may be, I'm speculating, but I think it's probably so, that most Canadians have sympathy with them at this point. I would certainly hope that is the case. Oh, well, I would hope so as well. But according to the polls, uh, if they're to be believed, <laughs> that's always a question. Uh, up to two-thirds of Canadians actually would would be in favor, Jonathan, of using the military to forcibly remove protesters. This breaks my heart. This this fact, if this is in fact accurate, this poll, two-thirds of Canadians, part of me thinks this country's lost. What are your thoughts? When, when, the, when the overwhelming, uh, um, the, the population is against you in your endeavor to secure even... They're even fighting for the rights of those people that are opposed to them. But when so many are in opposition to you, what does that say about a country and its future? Well, it, if indeed it is true that an overwhelming majority of Canadians support the government's position and would have the military arrest the uh, Freedom Convoy people... Um, that's a very sad sign because that means that uh, coercion, force, and uh, it, to eliminate political dissent is acceptable to most Canadians. What I would say then to that majority is that you had better beware that there will come a time when you have an interest individually that dissents from the majority. And you would like to have a a place of safe harbor where the law would protect you in your dissent. But if you follow this course, 
you will ensure that your own rights are being violated because it's not just the truckers rights that you're taking away with this precedent you're establishing that the state can overwhelm and override and use brute force against any in dissent so it's a slippery slope they've created if they believe in this and they had better be careful because there will come a time as government continues to grow because that's what they're asking be done if they ask for the for the military to be used against the citizens of the of the country not against a foreign adversary there will come a time when that same military will be used against them because one thing's for certain the truth is the more power you give to the state and the less power you allow for individual discretion and dissent the less freedom you have and it continues on in that vein until there comes a point when if you don't adhere to what is demanded you will be punished so it's it's not good to to uh... to to condemn others for the exercise of their freedoms you should celebrate freedom universally even if you disagree with those who are protesting their right to protest their right to assemble their right to freedom of religion their right to attend the churches of their choices their right to travel unmolested by the state all of these things are fundamental rights and when you give them up for whatever cause and in this it's tragic that people would give it up for a virus then you can't really have anyone to blame but yourself because you didn't stand up for liberty. Jonathan, we've got to take a quick time out. We'll come back and uh, discuss further. Jonathan W. E. Mord, U.S. constitutional lawyer, emord.com, the website. The book is The Authoritarians. Back with more of our conversation right after these. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. And we are back with Jonathan W. Emord, U.S. constitutional lawyer. The latest book is The Authoritarians, Emord, E-M-O-R-D dot com, Emord. Dot com. We're talking about civil disobedience, the uh, the truckers' protest. Um, in Canada, we have a Charter of Rights that was passed in uh, 1982. I think it took effect officially in 1985. And we have our fund- fundamental freedoms, freedom of conscience and religion, freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression – Freedom of the press, of course, freedom of peaceful assembly, freedom of association. We have our democratic rights, of course. We have mobility rights. Every citizen of Canada has the right to enter, remain in, and leave Canada. That one's being challenged right now, obviously, because if you're vaccine-free, you, you literally are a prisoner in, in this country. We have the right to, uh, to move and gain livelihood. Um, we have legal rights, life, liberty, and the security of a person. But these fundamental rights 
are not absolute. We have something, I call it the weenie clause, Jonathan, it's section one of the charter, and it says the Canadian Rights Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees the rights and freedoms set out in us in, in it subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed, prescribed by law as can be demonstrated uh, sorry, as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So in other words, again, these rights and freedoms set out in it subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. To me, that's problematic because we have fundamental rights, but ultimately, if they can be overridden by a judge, what good are they? What are your thoughts? Is that section problematic? You bet. And the reason uh, it's problematic is because it's based on a false premise. Uh, when Thomas Jefferson defined liberty in the early days of the American Revolution, he said that liberty was freedom from restraint and that it was beyond that to be limited only by another person's liberty, right of liberty, but not by the law, because he said the law is often the tyrant's weapon. And so it is in the United States that we have pre-political rights. Our rights are said to come from God in the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, and not from the state. The problem in Canada with the Charter of Rights is that it's a creature of Parliament, and so it is affected by law to the extent Parliament wishes to constrain rights. It may use Section 1, and that, of course, is entirely unacceptable. The reason why it's unacceptable is that these rights to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, the, uh, and property... These rights are indeed pre-political, and you need not answer to a magistrate to exercise them. You need not achieve the assent of Parliament or any other authority to exercise them. They are your birthright. They come from God. This notion, which is embedded in Lockean philosophy in the Second Treatise on Government, is revolutionary and form the foundation for the principles that underlie the American Constitution. You lack that written Constitution, you lack that written Bill of Rights that recognizes the rights of man to be pre-political, that understands that it, you don't go to the state to get your rights. Your rights you have at birth, and they come from God. Now, the problem, then, is one of, of living in a world of second bests. How do you cope in a world that has not recognized your rights as fundamental birthrights that are unalienable, incapable of being taken away from you? Well, you must struggle. And you must struggle to change the law. But, of course, it's a bigger issue to change the law to recognize these rights as pre-political, particularly now in this late stage of development of the Canadian democracy. But if Canada wishes to have rights and have them be protected, 
and not have them capable of being written away by any uh, renegade, radical prime minister like Justin Trudeau comes down the pike, you have to make it impossible for that prime minister to be able to exercise such a broad blanket ability to affect a constriction of your rights. There will always be emergencies. Everything can be arguably defined into a state of emergency. Uh, tyrants throughout history have used the argument of, an, of military necessity or an emergency to justify the deprivation of people's rights. Tyrants are born every day claiming that they have to exercise authoritarian control in order to protect the public from one alleged harm or another. This is just the latest variety of it. They've seized upon the, vac the virus as a justification for a gross expansion in state power to the extent that people literally cower in, in fear about what will become of them if they transgress even the slightest rule on where they can travel, what vaccine passport has to be used to get into one uh, uh, facility or, or uh, place of business or another because of this type of environment. This is the way it is in Australia or has been for some time in Australia as well. It's a, it's is, is for a Canada particular function of parliamentary systems, well, as, uh, as opposed to the American system, that uh, in the parliamentary system and countries that live under such systems, we tend to place or put greater value on disability the rights of the collective versus the individual. When you, you hear in the media up here all the time, I find it rather um, uh, disheartening You know that, that we have to somehow balance our individual rights or we have to give up our individual rights for the greater good. Uh, we, we have a, a state broadcaster here, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which is now on social media calling the idea of freedom as a they the Globe and Mail, the newspaper said that freedom has been weaponized by the far right. I've never heard such nonsense, but this is this is the reality up here. But to my point about the the parliamentary system, the, the, the from the the British Commonwealth, uh, is 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 this um, giving into the collective the collective rights? superseding the individual rights. Is this a, um, unique to the parliamentary system? No, it's common among all socialist states. Um, collective rights are a myth. There is no such thing as a collective right. Rights are individual. You, uh, you don't speak in unison with 50 other people or 100 other people on uh, all the topics of interest to you. They're unique to you. Your freedom of speech is your right, unique to you. Likewise, your freedom of religion, your freedom of conscience, your freedom to travel. We don't travel as herds. We're not herd animals. We are individuals, and as a result, our rights must be individual. When you talk of collective rights, it's a myth. Rights don't arise from a collective. 
a collect this con this notion of collective rights is a byproduct of socialism. It's a byproduct of Friedrich Hegel's uh, conception of collectivism that arose in the early 19th century and pre presaged Marxism. It is an idea that merely justifies the exercise of state action in transgression of individual rights. Because collective rights are, are ordinarily pitted against individual rights. This idea that society has an interest that is more important than your rights, and therefore your rights can be violated to ensure protection for the collective, is nothing more than socialism. And what it results in is increasing levels of deprivation of freedom. It means that you are more of a slave than you are a sovereign. And in, in a just society, where individual rights are protected, the individual is sovereign, sovereign over his person, sovereign over those things to which he has used the sweat of his brow and his labor to create something of value and property unique to himself. Uh, Jefferson said, I am not a friend of a very energetic government. It is always oppressive. We should always have a wary eye about government. Government is nothing more than the use of force at the behest of those who are granted a license to engage in political decision-making. And that is a very dangerous thing. When you have a monopoly of force that you can exercise whenever you care to declare a public interest or collective right or collective end, then there is nothing left to the individual except that which the state allows. It's the Jonathan, opposite. Uh, pardon the interruption. Got to take, take another time out. We'll come back and uh, discuss further. Jonathan W. E. Mord, author of The Authoritarians, emord.com, will also take questions from the, uh, the live chat. And uh, Ryan, my live stream producer, will collate them and I'll read them on the air. Back with more of my conversation with Jonathan right after these. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Just a reminder, coming up in hour two, Julius Ruchel. I call him the cowboy philosopher, former cattle rancher turned data researcher. He dives deep into the uh, into the data, and he's uh, the author of Autopsy of a Pandemic. And then, towards the tail end of the program, the former head of Alberta's Emergency Management Agency, David Redman, will be here to talk about how all of the provinces, all 10 of the provinces, all three of our territories had perfectly fine emergency response or emergency pandemic response plans in place before 2020. They get updated regularly. And they were all thrown out the window. In the panic, I suppose. And so now... The response has been the exact opposite of what those pandemic plans recommended. 
David Redman coming up in uh, hour two. Jonathan W. Emord stays with us, the author of The Authoritarians, and uh, the website is emord.com. So, Jonathan, your uh, Bill of Rights, you don't have that uh, that section one, that weenie clause that I mentioned earlier, uh, that, you know, all of our uh, rights and freedoms are, are there are they are subject to reasonable limits. That's section one of our our uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms. You don't have a section one, and yet still, there are many occasions where, through the pandemic, inalienable uh, right, rights have been infringed upon, and the courts have have ruled that those infringements were justified. So, what good is a charter or a bill of rights in this case? Well, that's a very good point. We have raging socialism in the United States. We have people like AOC and Bernie Sanders, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, who are advocates of this collectivism we've been talking about, uh, we've been talking about. And they do just what uh, Justin Trudeau has done. Um, While they seem to have a liberal tolerance for mass destruction by BLM and Antifa and even align themselves with BLM despite its destructive activities and its movement towards socialism and education and its rather callous disregard for actual losses suffered by individual uh, uh, black people in this country and in Canada. Um, He nevertheless, Justin Trudeau, aligns himself with them and he ignores their destruction. He doesn't bring down the threat of use of military force against them, even though they caused mass destruction, certainly across uh, the United States, for uh, over a year and continuing in city after city, burning, looting, uh, murder, and in Canada to some degree as well, and, and with Canadian churches being desecrated and churches throughout the, and religious centers throughout the United States being damaged and desecrated. Um, so there is a threat on, and a movement afoot, not just in Canada, but in the United States, of course, as well, where uh, rights are being violated, where courts are not protecting rights, where individuals are getting away with literally murder, where this whole movement to let criminals go free, uh, unchecked by the law. And yet notice the hypocrisy here. Notice how the liberal media in the United States attacks the Freedom Convoy, and likewise in Canada, and how the state takes the view that these peaceful people overwhelmingly peaceful. You'd be hard-pressed to find a single instance of any organized violence like you had with BLM and Antifa riots all across the nation, uh, and and in Canada, too. Uh, and yet, the state was quite tolerant there, and is utterly intolerant of the Freedom Convoy, mouthing platitudes about protecting freedom of speech, but looking at for every alternative to declare anything they do unlawful, depriving them of fuel, trying to make it difficult for them to survive, uh, cutting off access to goods and services, denying people the right to supply.
fly them, this sort of thing, they never would have thought to do in a million years to the racist protesters and the advocates of socialism. Isn't that interesting? Well, we have uh, the um, the counter-protests now in Ottawa and elsewhere. These are people, I guess, who are protesting freedom, protesting getting rid of mask mandates, getting rid of vaccine passports. They're, they're in favor of those things. Uh, never mind that they're free to continue to, you know, cower in their basement and wear their mask 24-7, but that's not good. They want to protest. And now we're seeing in these protests a really uh, ugly, vindictive side. We're seeing people holding up signs saying, gas the vaccinated, or the unvaccinated, gas the unvaccinated, kill the unvaccinated. Uh, we are seeing uh, at these protests um, uh the, uh, the, the the hammer and sickle, the flag, you know, of communism, which has killed 100 million people in the tw- in the 20th century. And, of course, this is all being totally ignored by the mainstream media. Now, they found, you know, one agent provocateur waving a Confederate flag up in Ottawa, which has no historical context whatsoever. Uh, and there was one agent provocateur waving a Nazi flag and it was called out, of course, by the uh, by the truckers. Uh, but now we have these gas the unvaccinated, kill the unvaccinated, and hammer and sickle flags everywhere. The mainstream media says absolutely nothing. Yeah, it's uh, it's really tragic to see this groupthink in the media, where dissent again is is not allowed. Cancel culture rages on, and um, that's most unfortunate. While. These people who are protesting in favor of Marxism, communism, and intolerance of dissent are enemies of liberty. It is precisely because we love liberty that we protect their right to protest. And that is the true sign of someone who believes in individual liberty, that they would allow even the opinions that they hate to be communicated to ensure that the law provides equal protection. This gets back to what we talked about earlier, when those who are advocating uh, denying the Freedom Convoy their rights and using the military against them are on the slippery slope. But Okay, Jonathan, sorry, this was a short segment. We've got to take one final time out, come back. We'll get to some uh, questions from our live stream. Jonathan E. Mord, author of The Authoritarian, stays with us. Don't go away. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. The truth will set you free. But first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. U.S. constitutional lawyer Jonathan W. Emord is with us, the authoritarians. How do we get a copy, Jonathan? Amazon or Walmart.com, Target.com, but most people get it from Amazon. And for my Canadian listeners, what would you say to them if they say, well, that's an American perspective? What would you say? No, I'm an advocate of individual liberty. While I'm very much an American, I believe to my core 
in the principle of individual liberty articulated in the second treatise on government by John Locke, who was a servant of the crown, of course, uh, never came to fruition in England, never came to fruition in Canada, but did come to fruition in our country here in the United States. And that is a great recourse. I would hope that someday every nation of the world could benefit from that recognition that we are sovereign, we are born free, our rights must be respected by the state, the state is our servant, not our master. And it just um, offends me to my core to see my brethren in Canada, uh, many of whom are related to me. My relatives actually were from Ottawa, and they came across into the United States from there on my father's side. But I just, even were that not the case, I just, Canada is a great free state, a great ally in, in the fight for liberty, but right now it's discrediting itself, as is Joe Biden, discrediting our own country in the United States by adhering to this socialist agenda, collectivism, and denying individual rights to dissent. You know, there's an alternative to this that people don't recognize, and they ought to take it very seriously. And that alternative is to recognize the doctor-patient relationship, the individual rights of each person, and allowing people to fully informed to exercise their individual choice, to choose what's best for them and their own families. We can't substitute for that a collective approach, a one-size-fits-all, get-a-vaccine-or-die approach. It simply is grossly insufficient. The vaccines are not perfect. They're not the solution to this problem. Ultimately, we have to rely on, on uh, treatments. There's going to be vaccine fatigue. No doubt it's already setting in. There are only so many persons going to want to accept it in a lifetime, particularly if they get sick from shot or if they feel uncomfortable with pain resulting from the shot or uh, if there are alternatives and there are treatment alternatives. Early treatment is the most important thing to, ta to deal with this. We have fulsome right. immunity coming out of the, the uh, Omicron, but we still need treatment available everywhere. And what these nations, both the United States and Canada, have done is they have made it so difficult to get access to treatments because they want to maximize the percentage of people being vaccinated even though the vaccine wanes within four or five months. And yeah, I have, a, I have a bad feeling, Jonathan, that part of this is they want to re eliminate the control group. I know that's sinister, but I'm left with very few alternatives at this point. I want to get to the live stream uh, questions here. You Betcha asks, Jonathan, how, does, how do we balance people's right to protest and people in downtown not to have to listen to honking horns all day? Yeah, um, there are reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions on protest that should be recognized. In other words, uh, you have rights as a citizen who lives in your home in Ottawa, and you have a right to peaceful existence in your home that can't be violated. And so there can be reasonable restrictions that protect your, your rights as a homeowner, and there should be. Yeah, I think the truckers have done a pretty good job in terms of self-policing uh, with that. Um, Momzilla asks, 
Oh, wants to know whether I would lead a freedom party in Canada or Ontario. Well, we already have those options. I think we have the People's Party that are running federally. And uh, here in Ontario, we have uh, the new Blue Party. Uh, let's see. Phil uh, Minervino asks, what role do the big ba- government? I'm not sure exactly what Phil means, but uh, Jonathan, do you want to talk about the role of big banks in government? Well, we have this unfortunate thing in the United States called the Federal Reserve System, and you likewise have a centralized system of banking in Canada. And um, it's a long story that we'll, we we probably can't take this show to address because the topic is different, but suffice it to say that uh, corruption prevails in this unit, unity between banking and government, and it has resulted in very severe restrictions on competition in banking and in uh, competition in currency. And that has uh, been to the great detriment of individuals and to freedom. So it's another big problem that needs to be addressed. We have a number of politicians, including the Prime Minister, including uh, one of the, uh, the leaders of the opposition, the NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh, the federal finance minister, a number of premiers who all seem to have sworn allegiance to the World Economic Forum. Do you think that if you are the leader of a country or or of a, a province, uh, that that you, you should be disqualified from running if you are a member of the World Economic Forum? I do believe that Unions of that sort are greatly to the disadvantage of people within their own nations, whether it's in the United States or in Canada. We need to be, nationalism is real and is important. Canada is a a nation with people who are necessarily uh, similar in their, much much closer in their wants, needs, and interests than, say, uh, they would be to people in Africa or France or somewhere else. And I mean this in the sense that you have an interest in protecting the resources of Canada and ensuring that your customs and traditions are protected to the extent that it defines uh, free options for your people and uh, defines who you are as people in the world. This idea of trying to to give to international bodies control over your nation is a very bad idea. I favored Brexit, for example. Um, the ruination that comes when a, a party that is distant from your shores can decide for you what your economy will do or what an individual business can do in your country is outrageous deprivation of sovereignty and uh, political control. It, it destroys democracy in your country. So, you, uh, very quickly, Jonathan, I've just got about thirty not, seconds here. But do you think that this trucker protest that is now going worldwide is this the beginning of something, an unstoppable movement towards populism, perhaps a new nationalism? I think it is unstoppable. I think it is a movement for individual liberty, and I I am delighted to see it. I I didn't I was becoming quite less sanguine about the prospects for rising up against totalitarianism, 
collectivism, socialism, but not now that I've seen the truckers. And I believe it is an international movement. It's our, We're already seeing it all over. It'll be happening in the United States soon. Jonathan, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your insights. You're welcome. Great to be with you. Emord.com. Emord.com. Get a copy of The Authoritarians available at Amazon. All right. When we come back, the cowboy philosopher, former cattle rancher turned COVID data researcher and the author of Autopsy of a Pandemic, Julius Ruchel, will be here. And later, the uh, former director of Alberta's Emergency Management Agency, David Redman. Back with more after these. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home. Your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi. Your parents' well-appointed basement with a simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft. That greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods. Once again, Carlos Kajina is our technical producer, and Ryan White is our live stream producer. Check out my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, and my Rumble channel, Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. This hour, remember this, Trump on 60 Minutes with Leslie Stahl back in October 2020, just before the elections. Biggest scandal was when they spied on my campaign. They spied on my campaign. Well, there's Leslie. no real evidence of that. Of course there is. No. It's all over the place. Leslie, Sir, they spied on my campaign and they can got I, Can I say something? You know, this is 60 Minutes, and we can't put on things we can't well, verify. You won't put it on. There you go. Donald Trump was adamant his campaign was being spied on. I mean, he was talking about this beginning in, in 2016. He said the phones are being tapped. The phones have been tapped. Now, that's kind of an arcane reference, an archaic reference. You don't tap phones anymore in the digital age. But that's the language he was using. And he was pilloried in the legacy media for those claims. Well, that story isn't going away. In fact, it's really, really starting to ramp up. U.S. Special Counsel John Durham, remember him? He's been quiet, but he's been slowly and quietly investigating the origins of the Russian collusion hoax and the phony Trump Russia dossier that tried tried to uh, 
derail the Trump campaign and then later thwart his presidency. On uh, Friday, February the 12th, U.S. Special Counsel John Durham filed a motion alleging that lawyers for the Clinton campaign paid a technology company to infiltrate servers belonging to Trump Tower and later the Trump White House in order to establish an inference and narrative to bring a government uh, agencies linking Donald Trump to Russia. Durham filed a motion Feb 11th focusing on potential conflicts of interest related to the representation of former Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman, who has since been charged with making a false statement to a federal agent. Sussman has pled not guilty. The indictment against Sussman says he told then FBI General Counsel James Baker in September 2016, less than two months before the uh, presidential election, that he was not doing work for any client when he requested and held a meeting in which he presented purported data and white papers that, le- that allegedly demonstrated a covert communications channel between the Trump organization and Alpha Bank, a Russian bank with ties to the Kremlin. Here to make sense of all of this, U.S. Attorney John O'Connor. John's a former assistant U.S. attorney in Northern California, representing the United States in both criminal and civil cases. He's perhaps most famous for representing former deputy director of the FBI and Watergate whistleblower Mark Felt, a.k.a. Deep Throat. And uh, he's the author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and began today's partisan advocacy journalism. And he's also the host of the Mysteries of Watergate podcast. John, welcome back. How are you? Do we have John there? Not hearing John O'Connor. I'm sorry, Richard. Uh, There we are. No worries. Okay. There you are. Okay, good. I I had muted myself because I didn't know if I was going to be on TV or whatever. Uh, I've got (laughs) a little picture on your streaming, but let's just uh, chat here. And let me uh, respond to what you're saying here. Uh, One of the things about the Sussman indictment, for not revealing who he was really working for is the most minor of the Sussman crimes. Durham was forced to file that because he filed it five days after the meeting, five years after the meeting. He had a five-year statute of limitations. And in this particular crime, there was no apparent conspiracy. Now, there's probably a conspiracy, but he couldn't prove it. So if it was a one-off, he had to prove the case. He had to indict the case within five years. So the Sussman case was early harbinger of things to come. Um, the real wrong and the real nasty and dastardly plot of Sussman and company was to go to the FBI, and, and, and Durham alludes to this in his indictment, with, it, with again, a false story of, Trump's treasonous connections with Russia using this, this Alpha Bank server. Now, uh, what Durham told us, and he hasn't indicted this yet, he's got plenty of time to do it, was that they knew everyone involved in this plot, and it, we now know it's several of these techies, uh, Rodney Joffe and probably some of the um, researchers, uh, 
this L. Jean Camp from Indiana and David Dagan from Georgia Institute of Technology, among others, were all getting together, and they were trying to put together white papers to show falsely for people who didn't know anything about the Internet or about these arcane uh, pings from servers that Trump was communicating with Russia through Alpha Bank. Now, this, so, but, but we, in the, in the first, so anyway, that hasn't even been indicted yet. There's going to be about six or seven people indicted for that, Richard, for the Alpha Bank story. Now, what Sussman tells us, in, what the Durham tells us in his latest filing, which isn't an indictment, the left-wing press gets all hot and bothered to say, oh, he really didn't commit, he didn't say spying, he didn't say infiltration, he didn't do this, he didn't do that. This was a filing just to get Sussman to waive conflicts and to really make them, uh, make him face them, because Sussman was probably playing a game with him so, so he could charge a conflict later on. Durham's too smart for that. But the point is, in this latest filing, Durham let a couple cats out of the bag, one of which was they not only came up with the false Alpha Bank story to the FBI, which is a false statement within a matter within the jurisdiction of the FBI and therefore a crime, but now, even after the campaign is lost, they're now trying to discredit Trump's presidency by coming up with not only the Alpha Bank story to the CIA, but they're now coming up with a second one. The second false story is Trump and his people are are con- conversing with Russia through a Russian phone uh, provider. They're pinging all over. They must be using these Russian-made phones in the vicinity of the White House and Trump Tower and uh, Trump's apartment building all to talk to the Russians. Now, of course, it was made up gobbledygook, and they knew it was false. They just made up stuff to try to, like you said, I think you said the words inference and narrative. They're In other words, to frame him. This arcane stuff that nobody understands to say, oh, there's a narrative, there's an inference that Trump is colluding with Russians. So this is really nasty stuff. You realize to what extent Hillary was not just passive. It's not as though she hired um, uh, Steele, Christopher Steele, and just sat back, and maybe he thought she thought he was getting something. Maybe she didn't. No, 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 no. She was behind the whole thing. She had her, and, and actually her assistant, Jake Sullivan, according to now the declassified notes of the CIA, had made up the whole Russian collusion thing himself. So Hillary made it up. She hires Steele to back it up. She gets the FBI and the CIA to back her on it. She uses Sussman and these other Internet people to come up with these phony stories to back up her phony stories. And these people are all over the place trying to first uh, interfere with Trump's campaign and secondly to discredit his uh, his presidency, all with the compliance of a lapdog media, and that's the other part of this that's terrible. So it's a campaign, it's a government, it's the tech people, and the media. You can't think of a more complete and overwhelming conspiracy to get this guy, whatever you think of Trump, 
whether he's too blustery and bumptious, all that stuff. But he's a normal citizen. And to see all these forces arrayed against him to stop him is really chilling. It's chilling, and it's one of the worst things. It makes Watergate look like, uh, you know, a kid's birthday party. That's all and I you can ought say to, about And that. you ought to know, John O'Connor represented uh, Deputy Director of the FBI at the time, Mark Felt, who uh, we later learned was the Watergate whistleblower, the infamous Deep Throat. And um, uh, John wrote all about it in Postgate. How the Washington Post betrayed Deep Throat, covered up Watergate, and began today's partisan advocacy journalism. So when um, when Trump went on 60 Minutes in October 2020 and, and, and said to Leslie Stahl, you know, they spied on my campaign, um, was he just going on sort of a gut instinct? What did he know? I don't know if you can answer this, but what did he know then? That, that John Durham has now uncovered, or, or or did he? Did he just have a gut feeling? Well, I think he was probably well advised. Uh, I think probably had heard from some source. Remember, before the the uh, FISA-gate thing, uh, Comey and people started getting this Russiagate warrant, and they didn't do it until October of 16. However, Bruce Orr and others had tried to get, and we because it's all classified, we don't know exactly what he's trying to get, but he was trying to get some sort of warrant on Trump Tower back in May and June of 16. So this was real disappointing that that in one of the few cases where FISA turned somebody down, they turned people down on Trump Tower. But basically, they did try to get a warrant then to spy on Trump Tower. They wanted to get it. Now, what you get, and here's what people need to know, and why Trump was really onto something. And as usual, his you know he's you know, he bumbles around a bit, but his instincts are very good. And what happens is, any time you can surveil somebody, the national security rules are you get two jumps. And let me tell you what that is: if you uh, surveil Carter Page, people are wondering why does anybody care about Carter Page? Well, you don't. Carter Page, you get two jumps from Carter Page. Carter Page talks to, let's say, nine people in the Trump campaign. Each of those nine people you can then surveil. You can wiretap them, and you can listen, uh, you can read their emails, and so forth and so on. That's the first jump. The second jump is those people then talk to the next group of people. And if Page talks to Corey Lewandowski and Corey Lewandowski talks to Trump, you can wiretap Trump, and you certainly can wiretap Trump Tower. Any of these people are communicating with Trump Tower. So when Trump says Trump Tower has been wiretapped, he's damn right. You know, now it may just be instinctual. I don't know what he knew. Now, let me add to that, Richard. The Obama administration, again, this is classified, but the word is that they thought that three jumps were appropriate because they really like to bend the rules and nobody stops them. They had a three-jump rule, I am told. I don't know this for sure, but I am told that, and it's it's out there. And if you had three jumps, well, probably two jumps will get you everybody you need to know. But just in right. case, you get three jumps. Well, that, that gets you just about everybody in the, in the Washington, D.C. area. And right. It's like, yeah, three degrees so, of separation. Right. It's three degrees of separation, and that's an awful lot. You talk to one person, they talk to others, they, the others talk to others. Think about that 
particular pattern, especially politicians who are talking to a lot of people. Their job is to talk to their network. So it's very chilling. And this is a political campaign that they're doing this to. So Trump was actually right, absolutely right. And of course, Leslie Stahl's attitude is, well, you don't know that. How can you say that? We don't know that. But yet at the same time, those same people are very willing to embrace this absurd Russian collusion narrative, which may have been uh, good for a Superman comic book uh, with Lex Luthor, uh, you know, uh, trying to control the world uh, through the United States president. But it is such a paranoid, ridiculous fantasy, so cartoonishly documented by Christopher Steele, yet they'll report on that, and they'll talk about that. But if Trump says he's wiretapped, which he was, oh, no, we can't, we can't, we can't talk about that. So, yeah, I mean, this whole thing, uh, you know, everything is turned on its head here, uh, Richard. It's just really terrible. And, and Let me and see if I, I understand here now the, yeah, the timeline. So the Clinton campaign hires Christopher Steele. He goes to some intermediaries and they put this ridiculous Russian Trump dossier together, yeah, which is right. a total fabrication. They use that, even though they it's totally unverified, and we now know it was totally uh, uh, made up, but it was unverified. They take the dossier, they get the Pfizer warrant, that gives them permission to spy on the Trump campaign, but that doesn't give them, they don't get the warrant to spy on Trump Tower, or do they with that Pfizer warrant? Well, it doesn't make any difference. When you get, when you say it's Carter Page, for example, and they had investigations on four people, they certainly got an, a warrant as to Carter Page as a Russian agent. Now, I'm not sure what the warrant entailed. It may have entailed other people of interest than Carter Page, like Paul Manafort, George Papadopoulos, and Michael Flynn. It may have included all those four. But we know, and, and we just don't know. I mean, actually, we have very little transparency. We know it included Carter Page. Okay. If you have Carter Page, then what you do is everybody that Carter Page talks to, communicates with, now or in the past, in the past, when he's, remember, by the time they get the warrant, Carter Page isn't even with the campaign. But they can go back and see who you talked to in, in August or, you know, July. So Carter Page talks to Corey Lewandowski, who I think is his guy, just as a good example. But he emails, let's say, 20 people in the campaign that he's supposed to be doing stuff with. All of those 20 people, the um, FBI can go in and monitor those 20 people. They can wiretap them. I say wiretap them. They can overhear their phone calls, and they certainly can look at their emails. And it's very easy for them to look at their emails. Right. So now they have them, sort of in, in essence, wiretapping all those people. Now, are any of those people in Trump Tower? Maybe. Maybe not, but certainly if he's talked to Corey Lewandowski, he'll be in Trump Tower. Now, that's just the first jump. Now you get to the second jump. So, yes, the whole idea isn't uh, to wiretap Trump Tower. It's to wiretap people who are in Trump Tower or talk to Trump Tower. So you're wiretapping Trump Tower. Now, Trump may have been alluding to the prior failed attempt in May and June of 2016, 
where they literally tried to wiretap Trump Tower. Uh, or, or, and I think it might have had to do with a server. I think this uh, uh, they were trying to get a Trump server. So there was an attempt to get right into Trump Tower. Now, th- that didn't work. The FISA court went, no, 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 no. I mean, it was too obviously a, a, a ridiculous request. But getting to the real FISA warrant, yeah, of course. You know, but, if, but, if they, let me put it this way. If they didn't yeah. get to Trump Tower, there's something the matter. Okay, but then this latest filing from Durham is talking about Michael Sussman, Clinton campaign lawyer, hiring uh, a tech company or a tech executive. It's this tech company that ends up um, hacking into the, uh, the the server at Trump Tower. And then later, obviously, this, the, this Jaffe fellow is working on contract inside Washington because he has access to, to you know, the uh, the White House server. Uh, he's hired not by the FBI or uh, he's not operating with a FISA warrant. He's hired separately by Michael Sussman to spy on Trump, the tower as during the campaign. And then later the Trump White House when Trump is president. Right. That's not he's not operating with a FISA warrant. He's. He's an inside no, guy no. being hired by a Clinton lawyer. That much is clear, right? Well, yeah, and here's 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 where it gets people. The left-wing press doesn't do this justice because what happens is there are people, you may have a housekeeper who or an assistant, let's say, that comes in and pays your bills and looks at your correspondence. Um, that's legal. The, that person has access to your stuff. What is wrong is if somebody actually was hiring her to violate your privacy rights. And therefore, you can say she infiltrated your house, and you can say she's spying on you. So what happens is, is this Rodney Jaffe, a tech exec, his company, Newstar, had the right to access and maintain the servers in Trump Tower, and he he did a lot of servers. Their company does all these servers. So they had servers in Trump Tower, in Trump's apartment building, and in the White House. And so what he could do is, so those were all perfectly legitimate access. The problem right, is he doesn't he's have not to supposed to he has legitimate access, access to use it for something else. Right. Right. And, and that something else is, is to somehow take these disparate parts, little bits of information and, and pings coming from Russia and wherever, and then grab all that and try and create this pastiche that makes it look like that Trump and uh, Alpha Bank, which has access to the Kremlin, are some ca- somehow in cahoots and communication. In other words, this is the inference and the frame. This is the framing. They've taken this, these little desperate parts of information and tried to create a false narrative. They tried to frame the campaign. Right. And, uh, and what all right, we'll, uh, we'll, yeah. we'll take a quick time out. Uh, John, John O'Connor is uh, with us host of uh, the Mysteries of Watergate podcast cast will tell you how to listen as well as uh, author of the book Postgate how the Washington Post betrayed deep throat covered up Watergate and began today's partisan advocacy journalism back uh, with more on the Clinton spy scandal right after these when in doubt blame the government you're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, 
Call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. U.S. Attorney John O'Connor stays with us, author of Postgate and host of the podcast, The Mysteries of Watergate. And just go to postgatebook.com, postgatebook.com. You can get the book there, and you can also subscribe to the podcast. It's available everywhere, The Mysteries of Watergate. And we're talking about the uh, Hillary Clinton campaign spying on not only the Trump campaign, but also the Trump White House. So Michael Sussman, uh, who hired the uh, the tech people, who had access to the uh, the server in Trump Tower and later the Trump White House, and they they put this white paper together, f- which framed Trump, drawing inferences between uh, the Trump campaign and this Alpha Bank, uh, which which has ties to the the Kremlin, and tried to create this collusion. They put that in a white paper. Michael Sussman, who hired these people to do it, then takes that white paper to the FBI, doesn't really reveal to the FBI that he is working for the Hillary Clinton campaign and says, look, what, look what I have here. You should investigate this. And then because he didn't reveal himself uh, as a as a working for the Clinton campaign, uh, basically, he lied to the FBI. That's why he was indicted by John Durham. Correct. Do I have that right? Well, yes, but as I say, that's the least of his lies. Right. The, the real lie was in both to the FBI in October of 16 and to the FBI in February 17, he is cooking up what Durham can clearly prove is an obviously false story that all these people, this is what's chilling. They all know it's false. It's not like they're idiots who've come up with this conspiracy theory that's baseless. No, they know it's false. And in the Alpha Bank story, they're communicating with each, with each other how to keep out certain details so that the FBI and the public won't know it's false. In others, they're trying to de-detail it because they know it's false and they don't want anybody to find them out, at least until the FBI has had it for a while so they can leak to the public the FBI is investigating. What's right. terrible about it is, is the consciousness that everything they're saying is complete BS. Now, let me get to the but white paper, the recent thing from Durham that is so chilling is in this foray to the CIA in February of 17, they're coming up with this white paper with the pings and all that. But what they're doing is it's one thing in my example of you having a housekeeper that's getting into your stuff, and she's giving out truthfully stuff that she's gotten from your desk. This is a case in which they're using the false provenance of having access to these servers as then being a basis for saying they have a foundation for what they're saying, but in fact, the foundation is a pack of lies. And let me give you one major example. It's called Yodafone. Besides Alpha Bank, you'll hear a lot about Yodafone. Yodafone is the Russian phone provider over which Trump, with which Trump was supposedly communicating, and over which he was using Yodafone wireless devices that were, uh, and all his people were communicating with Russia using those wireless devices. Well, they were using some of the evidence they were using for this cockamamie theory was falsely stated to be 
stuff that had come from the Trump White House. It really came from the Obama White House, if you can believe it. In other words, the Obama White House had done a few hundred innocent, what they call lookups, where, you know, your server communicates to another server someplace that somehow is associated with a Yodafone server. You know, I mean, it can be on anything. It can be. It's minor stuff. There are three million lookups every year to this Russian phone provider's different uh, websites it's nothing there they just have some websites that people uh, you know ping and spam and all that stuff but but my point is they took information that really came from obama and they falsely packaged it as coming from trump and they falsely packaged the fact that they knew something so you know it's not just that they spied and took true material out they didn't they spied and they used that as a false basis for saying Trump spied. And of right. course, tra- yeah, the tried FBI, to frame him. you're the CIA, you think these people know something. So if, if you're looking at the, the Trump campaign and what the Hillary campaign was doing, I suppose you maybe you could make an argument, well, that's just dirty politics. Uh, you could say it's unethical, it's immoral, but the Clinton campaign was trying to defeat the uh, the Trump campaign. Maybe Trump also was trying to dig up stuff on Hillary. That's just dirty politics. How do you respond to that? Well, to a certain extent, it is a Nixon campaign on steroids if all they're doing. (laughs) Now, this is what I'm going to say. If all they're doing is like Hillary's tweets in which she's tweeting out nonsense about Russian conspiracies and Jake Sullivan is. If you talk about that, then all you are is is just sort of like the Rush Nixon campaign on steroids, just giving out false campaign information. Maybe it's a misdemeanor, maybe it's not. But what they did is they did something else. They went to government agencies, and they gave false stories to government agencies. And that is a crime. Remember, George ah. Papadopoulos was indicted for even giving a false date as to when he started in the Trump campaign. Real minor stuff. You tell it to a, an agency of the federal government in a matter within their jurisdiction, you've committed a five-year offense, my man. And that's what these people were doing right, left, and center. They were using the federal government. Now, this, those were, so those were the false statements made to the agencies. That's where Sussman comes in, the Alpha Bank ruse and now the Yodafone ruse. Now, the second thing that they did that goes beyond dirty politics is – they actually got the FBI to falsely start an investigation. She used Christopher Steele to knowingly put together a false report, which, by the way, used nothing but Russian sources. It was clearly in league with Putin that she was acting, not against Putin. She was in league with Putin, with Putin's people. At least Putin let her do this. Putin let her do this and probably laughed a lot about it. But he, his guys were, were on Steele's team, and Steele's one of them, by the way. He's Oleg Deripaska's guy. So they not only were telling false stories to the government, they were sort of infiltrating and working with the government in getting the FBI to start their Russiagate investigation. So now they're using all the power of the federal government, its intelligence agencies, Brennan's doing it over in Europe when he's trapping Papadopoulos. Then Comey starts in. He uses his uh, all his investigative resources, including FISA warrants, and they're now after Trump. So 
it's not just if she's just out on the stump saying nonsense that's one thing but but if she makes false stories to the government that's the second thing if she's using the government and conspiring with the government so that the government is doing something illegal the government itself is acting illegally and she's part of it that is profoundly disturbing that is a depth to which american politics has never sunk a candidate is in league with the cia and the fbi to cook up knowingly false stories now am i just saying this because i'm uh you know hate hillary no i don't hate hillary that's not why i'm saying this i'm saying this because i've read the horowitz report all 434 pages of it and this is the FBI's own guy who goes out of his way to be nice to the FBI and, and says some stuff that a lot of people don't disagree with in favor of the FBI. But he says that the FBI co- concocted 17, count them, 17 false uh, representations to the FISA court in order to get these warrants. 17 false uh, stories slash representations to the FISA court. So now we have the FBI, which is supposed to prosecute false stories, is now perpetrating a false story on the FISA court. Uh, Now, I'll tell you something even more chilling. Uh, Durham has said a while back, along with Barr, that uh, they gave Brennan a pass. I couldn't figure it out. But I thought, well, maybe Brennan was really straight and so forth and so on, in spite of him being a political guy. Well, I come to find out, Richard, I've got in my briefcase a deposition that most people have not read. There are probably three people that have. It's a deposition from Seymour Hearst, the famous uh, investigative reporter that used to be with the New York Times that did right. me lie and everybody, everything else. The guy's incredible. Now, he's a clearly as left as left can be. He hates Trump. He's a dyspeptic guy. He's no BS. And his sources in the intelligence community say that Brennan cooked up a disinformation program, which a CIA agent can literally do. The agency can do that, and Brennan had the authority to do it. That is to say, you can knowingly and willfully lie as part of a disinformation program, which, of course, is usually intended to see where the disinformation goes so you can figure out who the spies are. But John, i got to jump in here because we, we're running into a break. When we come back, let's pick up on this, this deposition. John O'Connor, the author of Postgate and uh, host of the Mysteries of Watergate podcast as we continue to talk about the Hillary Clinton spying uh, spygate, if you will. There was Russian collusion, but it was Hillary who colluded with the Russians. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, John O'Connor stays with us. This is a short segment, John, but we're talking about the Clinton spy scandal uh, and um, Special Counsel John Durham and his recent filings relating to a Clinton campaign lawyer, Michael Sussman, who who hired tech people who had contracts in the Trump Tower and in the the Trump White House. uh, And they put together this pastiche, uh, a white paper, which basically um, a false narrative. They framed candidate Trump. And when that didn't work and he was elected, they tried to frame 
President Trump and derail his presidency with his whole Russian collusion hoax. It turns out there was Russian collusion, but it was between the Hillary Clinton campaign and uh, the Russians. But you have this other – you mentioned this deposition. You say very few people have read. It involves Seymour Hirsch, former New York Times uh, reporter, and um, his – was it his investigation of former CIA head John Brennan? Well, he, his inside sources say okay. that Durham did not indict and decided not to make a target of Brennan because Brennan could point to, even though he said false things – Remember, all this is about saying false things within your jurisdiction. And Brennan uh, said a lot of false things, but one of his potential defenses was, I was in a disinformation campaign. So while Brennan is truthfully, this is, get this, he's truthfully telling the White House, along with Comey, in June of 2020, in July, I'm sorry, of 2020, that Hillary is cooking up this ridiculous story. Everybody knows that she's cooking it up to try to blame her woes about the DNC server on to Trump collusion. Everybody knows that the Russians know it. Their intelligence people, uh, their their Brennan sources from Russian intelligence, his his you know agent there, tells them that the Russians know that Hillary's doing this, and apparently. Trump, uh, Putin's okay with it. He lets it happen. But they know it's happening. Okay, so Brennan is truthful there behind the scenes. Later on, he is truthful in giving Comey a, an investigative referral for him to investigate Hillary for cooking up this false story. Now, what, what I've never been able to figure out is, well, first of all, this comes out. And then meanwhile, Brennan is out in public saying everything Trump did was nothing short of treason, blah, 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 blah. He gives this briefing to Harry Reid in August of 2016, and Harry comes out guns a-blazing, uh, you know, really just sort of spouting the Steele dossier stuff. Well, you know, that's probably a false statement he told Harry Reid. However, why does he get off? Because... He has a disinformation program. He's got a budget for a disinformation program. And so I think Durham said, hey, I'm not going to touch this. It's the CIA. They can have disinformation programs. He knows this stinks. He knows why Brennan did it. He did it for political purposes, but he had a disinformation program. So that is uh, how Brennan gets off. Now, the other thing that is interesting for your audience, Richard, is this. What is very apparent, especially after reading Seymour Hersh's deposition, is that uh, we get back to the murder of Seth Rich that nobody likes uh, to talk about. Yes, who, who was upset uh, at the treatment of his guy, Bernie Sanders, by the Clinton campaign and may have been the one that hacked into the DNC uh, emails, leaked them to WikiLeaks. Right. It may have been him, and some are speculating that's why he was uh, – the the victim of a an apparent botched robbery that was covered up by the Washington mayor and the police, and we still don't know what hospital he was taken to. Still, no ballistic reports. Right now, there's some of, of, of some reports out of that that are confidential, or where people the sources remain confidential. That they say that people couldn't get into Seth Rich's room, and they should have been able to save him. But but put that aside. A fellow named Brian Huddleston filed a suit to get FBI's investigation on this. 
And uh, the FBI has been very pushed back. They pushed back not to give documents, but he got a few documents. In one of the FBI documents that he got from his Freedom of Information Act request, the FBI said, we can understand why uh, someone may have wanted to pay for Seth Rich's death. There also is some indication in the files that there was some communication between Seth Rich and someone from Julian Assange's WikiLeaks. And I think the story is that Rich was a disgruntled Bernie bro who realized what had happened. Yep. And the mm-hmm. DNC had been uh, uh, had been uh, trumped up by Hillary to fixed by Hillary to, to oppose Bernie. That, that, that Therefore, there was a leak, not a hack. Now, the big story on the left was, oh, Russia's hacked the DNC. Russia did not hack the DNC. Let's get away from Seth Rich. There's a group of very left-leaning former intelligence uh, cybersecurity people who came up with, they're called VIPS, and VIPS is very, very well-respected. They were very anti-Bush in the run-up to the Iraq War and so forth. These guys say there's no way that this was a Russian hack. This was a leak from someone inside and so forth. So now what we have is there's a leak from inside. Hillary knows that Assange is going to release all this stuff. She starts hurrying, comes up with this Russian collusion thing to take uh, the sting out of it. Uh, the moment Assange releases the emails that kill, kill Hillary about Bernie, that's July 22nd. About two days later, Robbie Mook, the campaign manager, is saying, oh, Trump-Russian collusion, this is what did it, blah, 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 blah. They're working together on this. The Russians hacked it to help Trump. Um, Jake Sullivan is tweeting it. Hillary's tweeting it. Jennifer Palmieri is taking her golf cart around the uh, convention to tell everybody that this is a Russian plot. So this is what gave birth. Now, they knew this was coming. By the way, they knew this was coming since April 22nd for various technical reasons. They saw that somebody had done something in the server. It takes a while before Assange can release all these emails. It probably started April 22nd. The thing continued through May sometime, the leaking. But in any case, uh, what we have is a very sinister aspect to this, that that shoe may end up uh, dropping also. Uh, I think it will come out that I hate to say this, and I know Rich's parents don't like to be involved in this, but this looks very, very saturnine. Let me put it that way, that something like this has happened. And, uh, you know, you can probably connect his uh, his his murder up. I hate to say it, but, you know, there was a lot going on. There was an internal leak, and maybe it's just a coincidence that he gets shot. If, in fact, he was the leaker, Richard, he would be the only person on the face of the earth that from person first-hand knowledge would be able to testify that there was no Russian hacking, that it was a leak. There you go. Okay, John, you got to step away. We'll come back and uh, and finish up. John O'Connor, the uh, host of the Mysteries of Watergate podcast and author of Postgate, postgatebook.com, postgatebook.com. Back with more of our conversation right after these. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. From Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416 360 0740 or toll free 1 866 740 4740. 
John O'Connor is with us, U.S. Attorney, represented Mark Felt, the former uh, deputy director of the FBI during the Watergate era, and Mark Felt turned out to be none other than Deep Throat. And uh, John is also the author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, his client, covered up Watergate and began today's partisan advocacy journalism. He's also the host of the Mysteries of Watergate podcast, which is absolutely terrific and uh, spellbinding, and you can um, you can subscribe uh, and also get the book at postgatebook.com. So, John, let me just ask you a little bit, uh, back up here, and ask you something about the Office of uh, um, Special Counsel and John Durham. Yep. Uh, how does he, I mean, how is he able to to continue to operate under the Attorney General Merrick Garland, who's, who's Biden's guy? I mean, Biden may end up implicated in all this as well. How much, I mean, how much um leash is is Merrick Garland giving the special counsel John Durham and can he shut it down well he's looking at Dur- and Durham is very wary very cautious and you notice whenever you hear anything from Durham it is in an appropriate court pleading because Durham has the authority to tell us things like Lassie he is telling us things he tells us <laughs> things in proper court pleadings and so that's what I've been following because he's giving a sense, like Sussman's indictment for not telling Baker, James Baker, who he represented. Durham also gets into and foreshadows the Alpha Bank falsity, which has not yet been indicted, which he'll get five or six people on. But my point is, he is telling us this only in a proper forum. He does not leak. He does not do anything improper because if he did... He could then arguably, with Merrick Garland looking at everything he does, Merrick Garland could say, okay, you have violated justice to guidelines, I'm firing you. That's the only um, recourse Garland has. It's under the Justice Department guidelines. He cannot remove uh, Durham but for cause, and cause is clearly outlined as not one of the things being not following the guidelines. So. Durham is not going to get caught. He's going to do everything by the book, but he knows that Merrick Garland is just waiting to pounce on him. Now, the second thing, of course, that he's dealing with is everybody he indicts will not be anxious to turn because there are going to be people that could rat out Hillary, for example, but they're not going to do it. There are people that could rat out Comey, but they're not going to do it. I don't think Comey's going to get indicted. But they all know the people that are indicted, that if they just hold firm, they're going to get rewarded by their fellow uh, travelers, and uh, they will probably get pardoned or commuted. So Biden has that power, and I think the whispers are going to come out if they haven't come out already. You know, don't worry about anything. Everybody hold fast. Just yell at them as being yell at the right, as being conspiratorial idiots, uh, you know, this is just all a big conspiracy theory. And then, of course, after you get convicted, we'll then say, oh, this is all terrible. I'm going to uh, pardon you. But 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 that's the plan. OK, so I wanted to ask you about some of the other characters involved. We have Mark Elias, who was the general counsel to the Clinton campaign. So is he sort of one degree closer to Hillary himself? He worked at the uh, the law, the, the Clinton campaign law firm. Perkins, is it Coey? How do you pronounce that? Perkins Coey? Yeah, Perkins Coey. And yeah, Perkins Coey, Coey uh, 
Elias was Sussman's partner and, is, like you say, a degree closer to Hillary. Talked to her all the time. But I don't think he's going to turn on Hillary. He's one of the people that could turn on Hillary. The other person I think may get indicted that could turn on Hillary is Biden's uh, NSA, um, Jake Sullivan. I think he has a good shot. I mean, I would put my money uh, on an even money bet. I would bet he would get indicted for the Alpha Bank server story. I think he's on the emails. Uh, but but there's another guy that could roll over on Hillary because he and she were the ones who cooked up the Russian plot. So if she conspired with him to get this, any of the stories, any of the false stories, there are several of them, any of them to go to the FBI, she's a conspirator, and he could nail her. But unfortunately for all of us who like justice, he's going to not rat. If he gets indicted, he won't rat. So Elias and and, uh, Sullivan are two that could rat. Perhaps Robbie Mook, if he gets indicted, or Jennifer Palmieri could too. They're not going to rat. And uh, so uh, that's about it that could get Hillary. I think those are the people that are closest to her. What if, if, uh, and we should point out Jake Sullivan, before he was Biden's national security advisor, and he was involved in the the Clinton campaign, uh, he was going on all the chat shows, also playing up this, um, you know, this collusion. And now, lo and behold, he's uh, national security advisor and perhaps helping you know, could uh, is overseeing this situation between Russia and Ukraine. Um, what if John Durham were to to um, stretch this out, this investigation, uh, and continue it? You know, into twenty twenty four. Let's say Trump uh, regains the White House and Biden can no longer pardon all of these people. Could could Durham last that long? Well, that's a good question. Everybody, you you've just asked a brilliant question, Richard. Everybody has been carping on poor Durham with COVID and the first the Mueller investigation where Barr couldn't appoint anybody. Then Durham gets appointed. COVID comes, him. and you may have come up with the brilliant idea that uh, you know that maybe he could keep this going. Now the problem is that if I'm Biden and I know him is looking, let's say he's looking at, I'll, I'll use an example. Let's say he's still looking at Jake Sullivan for something. You can pardon somebody even before they're charged with a crime. You can just come oh. up with the way Richard Nixon was pardoned by Gerald Ford uh, before Richard Nixon got indicted. You just come up and say, "Okay, I'm going to I'm going to pardon you for any crimes that you have committed." Uh, well, you know, you can name the subject matter or any and all. Now, one of the, the wonderful powers of the pardoning uh, power is in Washington D.C where unlike every other place in the country where you have a state law and you and you can pardon somebody federally, but it doesn't affect your state law rights. Only in one place in the United States is that not true. And that's Washington, D.C., where uh, you don't have a state law. Every local crime, like spitting on the sidewalk, is a federal crime. And so the power, the 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 president does not have power to pardon me if I'm caught for spitting on the sidewalk, unless it's a federal crime in San Francisco. But if I spit on the sidewalk in Washington, D.C., he has that power. And so there's no other alternative jurisdiction that can get me. So that power, that pardon power is very close 
uh, very powerful and very all-inclusive for crimes committed within the District of Columbia, which all these are. <laughs> uh, well, unless they get, get uh, unless they get Jake Virginia. Sullivan and and uh, Mark Elias and ultimately Hillary, uh, I don't know, indict them in, uh, in the state of New York for what happened at Trump Tower. I don't know. Well, you, that's a good point. I mean, if you got a conservative G there. And also there were some crimes in Virginia, for example, but once again, all these are blue or purple or blue or purple states. But you're right. If you, you know, like, for instance, some stuff may happen in Langley, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You've got stuff happening in Trump Tower. But once again, you've got blue attorney generals and is Letitia James going to do anything? Probably not. So what I'm suggesting is, is that, you know, I think, look, I think it's enough that Sussman gets, and I don't care really about the punishment anyway. It's not going to help anybody out to a long term in jail. Um, you know, they're not going to burgle your house when they get out. Um, so, uh, but the, but so just indicting them and convicting them tells the story to the American people that I think is very salutary. Uh, right, yeah, uh, and it so, drives a stake. You know, it drives a final stake into Hillary's aspirations for the White House. I think. Right. It's about time because she got off this Robert Ray, who's a good guy, but everybody had Clinton fatigue after Monica Gate. And the real person in the Clinton scandal was Hillary that was doing all the stuff. Bill, all Bill did was, uh, you know, unzip his pants a few times. But <laughs> Hillary was the one who was into Filegate, Travelgate, Billinggate, all this stuff. She's diabolical. She told a lot of lies. And then after everybody's tired of Bill Clinton's impeachment, then Robert Ray, the new special prosecutor, comes along and says, okay, I'm going to, he writes a report that really damns Hillary, but says, okay, I'm not going to prosecute her. John, I got to uh, wrap it so up. We're, we're out of time. Um, yeah. But thank you so much for this. As always, postgatebook.com, postgatebook.com. Thank you so much, John. Hey, great, Richard. Good talking to you, buddy. See you. Great job. All right. Always terrific work by John. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, uh, Carlos. Back next week with a brand new program. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.